Uh, the passage that I want us to look at today is from John chapter 10. And the overarching question that I want us to consider this morning is this. What are the characteristics of those who follow the Good Shepherd? What are the characteristics of those who follow the Good Shepherd? Before we look into this passage, though, let's uh, open once more in prayer. Now, Lord God, we are grateful for the opportunity uh, to gather together. We're grateful for the beautiful and meaningful songs that we just sang and listened to. Uh, Lord, we're thankful. Um, and even as we're in this Thanksgiving season, we're just grateful to you for the many blessings you provide. Uh, we do ask, Lord, that through this passage, through John 10, we might be ever uh, so much more conformed to your image, Jesus, conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, bless and bless our time now, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as you are turning to John 10, let me just provide a little bit of background context that will hopefully give us greater clarity and understanding into John chapter 10. And the chapter break between chapter 9 and 10 of John is it's artificial. These are really two passages that go hand in hand. John chapter 9, I'm sure many of you are familiar with John 9, where uh, the man who had been born blind is healed. It's an incredible narrative and miracle worthy of its own study. Uh, what I want you to notice, though, is that the religious leaders in John chapter 9, the Pharisees, they despise Jesus and his message so much that they're unwilling to accept the testimony of the man who had been born blind. And when this man begins to give credit to Jesus regarding his miraculously newfound sight, chapter 9, verse 25, one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Notice how the Pharisees respond. For instance, 9, verse 34, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they, catch, and they cast him out. If you catch this, chapter 9, Jesus performs an astounding miracle. And then how do the religious leaders respond? Well, they, they cast out the one who had been healed. Due to his faith in Jesus, the man who had been born blind is no longer welcome in their synagogue. So how does Jesus respond to that? Well, Jesus responds with chapter 10. So we have, in this way, uh, the event the blind man healed John chapter 9, and then we have John chapter 10. Uh, Jesus is a good shepherd speech, a commentary in many ways. Jesus is commentary on John chapter 9. Let's go ahead and read through this passage. I'll begin reading in chapter 9, verse 40 through 10, verse 21. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind you would have no guilt. <clears throat> but now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and may have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. For there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of God. The first characteristic that we notice in this passage of those who follow the Good Shepherd is that they know his voice. Those who follow the Good Shepherd, they know his voice. We see this in verses 1 through 6. And notice from the beginning of this passage how strong of a contrast Jesus makes here between the characteristics of a shepherd and those of a thief. Verses 1 and 2, once again, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Let me ask you, have any of you ever owned any sheep? One. We've got one in the back. That that is impressive right there. For the rest of us, I have never owned any sheep. I'm sure most of us have not. Uh, So in studying this passage, I was intrigued to to consider a little bit of what this sheepfold would have entailed. What would it have been like? Well, in this Middle Eastern setting, the sheepfold would have been a rather common feature of small desert villages. It would have been a fairly rugged structure of decent size, probably made of stone, perhaps of mud brick. It would have been uh, without a roof, would have provided enough security for the sheep to enter in and to sleep. There would have been one doorway, one single doorway, the door of the sheep. It would have likely been corporally owned by a handful of different shepherds. They all together bring their sheep into this sheepfold during the evening and then bring them out during the day. They bring them in uh, so that they might be secure from wild animals and from thieves. Uh, For the sheep to exit and enter, again, there's only one entrance, this door of the sheep. Once the sheep were in the sheepfold, they could freely mingle. They they could respond. uh, They could move around with the other sheep as they would because the shepherd would be able to call them out with his unique call. They would all know his voice. Now, if you see someone climbing a fence or perhaps in our culture breaking a window or breaking a door, what does that indicate? They're probably not supposed to be there, right? They're probably not welcome. Well, this is the same thing that we see here. 10 verse 1. The one who climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber, but not so the shepherd. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Verse 3 through 5. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. 
consider what Jesus says here. I find it quite intriguing. Uh, look at uh, 10 verse 3. Not only do the sheep hear his voice, but in fact, 10 verse 4, they know his voice. I think there's a distinction here between hearing his voice and knowing his voice. There's a familiarity, a mutual respect. When he calls, what do they do? Well, 10 verse 4, the sheep follow him. I think of our dog, our pet dog, Umi, uh, a four-year-old white fluffy Samoyed. Some of you have had the privilege of meeting her, and a handful of you have actually had the privilege of a dog sitting her, for which we're very grateful. Um, when my wife and I got her as a puppy, we worked very hard uh, to train her to be able to come on command immediately. We would want to be able to call her, and she would come right away. And, and it has worked. We have two calls. One is a whistle. Specific whistle, those specific tones. The other is a phrase said in kind of a sing-songy way. Umi, come. You say one of those two calls, and she comes right away. Sometimes if we have a treat, she will come instantly. If we don't have a treat, she might slowly meander. It might take a little bit of time. <laughs> but she still comes. Let me ask you, did that happen automatically when we got her? Of course not. She didn't know our calls. And so what Allie and I would do, one of us would stand on one side of the house, perhaps upstairs, the other in the back room downstairs, and we'd take turns saying the same call over and over, and then we'd have a treat every time. Every single time she'd come, she'd hear it, and she would know if she heard that call and she came, she would be rewarded. Slowly, over time, her skill developed where she not just heard our voice, but she knew our voice. I can only imagine that the same is true of shepherds with their sheep. Does it happen automatically? No. It takes time. It takes practice for the sheep to be able to respond when they hear their shepherd's voice. They need to know that they can trust their good shepherd, that he has their best interest at heart. I believe that's Jesus' point right here, that the same reality is true with you and I. From the moment we place our faith in Jesus, he becomes our good shepherd. We are welcomed into his sheepfold, but do we yet know his voice? Well, perhaps, but perhaps not fully, at least not well. We first hear his voice through the reading of scripture, the word of God, through the faithful counsel of godly friends and mentors, through the teachings of uh, the Bible. Eventually, over time, we become more and more familiar with our good shepherd's voice. We begin to know it more. We can distinguish it from the many different voices that try to vie for our attention. The voices of the world proclaimed loudly over social media and reinforced in every aspect of our culture, from movies and television shows to uh, politicians, especially on an election week to our friends and neighbors from the external world all around us to the very internal world of our own selfish souls. For the mature believer, the seasoned sheep in the good shepherd's flock, even as these voices cry out ever loudly for our attention, we know not to listen. As Jesus so clearly articulates, 10 verse 5, his sheep do not know the voice of strangers, but the mature believer knows to listen only to the voice of his good shepherd. The mature believer knows how to accurately discern what is of God and what is contrary to God's will, how to live holy in a hostile world. Again, 10 verse 4, the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Well, why do the sheep 
follow him? Well, because they know that they can rely on him. The mature believer knows that his shepherd's plans are sure to prosper. He knows that what others mean for evil, his shepherd actually intends for good. Genesis 50, he knows that his good shepherd is near to the brokenhearted. His good shepherd saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, he knows that nothing can ever separate him from his shepherd. Romans 8, he knows that because of his shepherd's faithfulness in all things, whether tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, he is more than a conqueror. Let me say, for those who follow the good shepherd, those who follow the good shepherd, they know his voice. I want us to consider, then, the response of the crowd to Jesus' teaching. In 10 verse 6, Jesus presents this message, and how, do, how does the crowd respond? 10.6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Notice what an indictment this is on the religious leaders of, of chapter 9, really. Chapter 9, verse 40, the same Pharisees who had heard all these things, seen all of these things. The Pharisees heard Jesus' words, but again, they didn't know Jesus' words. They don't understand him. They don't understand what he is saying. Well, why not? I think quite simply, they're not following him as their good shepherd. Let me ask you, from what you all know about the Pharisees, were they mentally unable to comprehend what Jesus was saying? I don't think that's the case. I think they would have understood perfectly well the assertions that he's making. It's not that they can't understand it. It's that they choose not to accept it. And we see the same distinction throughout the scriptures. We see, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In today's language, we just say they just didn't get it. They didn't embrace it. They heard it, but they, they just didn't know it. Let me ask you, when you hear Jesus' voice through his word, through the moving of his spirit in your lives, do you stop to listen and to follow, to, to truly know and seek after him? It's only when we listen that we can truly understand and know. I believe this passage, again, is indicating those who follow the Good Shepherd, they, they really know his voice. Uh, the second characteristic that I want us to notice is that those who follow the Good Shepherd, they enjoy abundant life. And I just find this such an intriguing passage, especially 10 verse 10, this passage about abundant life. What does it mean? Well, first off, notice how uh, 10 verse 7 is parallel, right, with 10 verse 1. Both begin, truly, truly, I say to you. Well, it marks off a new section of comparable substance. So verse 7, Jesus again says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. In this passage right here and in a couple of verses to follow, we find two of these great I am statements. In 10 verse 7 and 9, we see the first of them. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. And then later on in 10 verse 11 and 14, he proclaims, I am the good shepherd. Both of these are closely related, but again, they're a little bit distinct, and I want us to just briefly draw out a couple distinctions between these two I am statements. As the door of the sheep, 
Jesus provides the only entrance into and out of the sheepfold. He provides the only way in this passage, I believe, it's saying the only way to truly abundant living. I believe this is parallel to passages like John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's an assertion of Jesus' divinity and his role as mediator between God and man. On the flip side, as the good shepherd, Jesus is the one who leads his sheep where they ought to go. He protects them from attack. An idea that's certainly parallel, we see to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Surely, when Jesus is making these statements here, Psalm 23 would have been on the mind of every one of the Israelites there, familiar as they would have been with the Old Testament. They know only the Lord God, Yahweh, is the true shepherd. So what Jesus is doing here, again, is fascinating. He is making a claim that he is, he is himself God. And you notice this, you notice how they pick this up. 10 verse 31, later on in the passage that we won't spend time on, the Jews pick up stones again to stone him. They recognize what he's saying. They know the assertions he's making. What I want you to notice in particular, though, here is the contrast between the good shepherd and the thieves and robbers of this passage. 10 verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now remember, 10 verse 6 This is an illustration or a figure of speech. So I don't think Jesus is saying that these thieves are necessarily murderers, but they do want to steal, kill, and destroy the sheep. He's not talking about people here. Again, we're using this analogy. He's talking about the sheep. They want to consume the sheep. They want to climb over the gate, enter the sheepfold, rob the good shepherd of as many of his flock, as many sheep from his flock as possible that they can gather for their own selfish motives. I want you to contrast this now with the good shepherd, who comes that his sheep may have life and may have it abundantly. John 10.10, frequently cited verse, perhaps some of you have even memorized it. John 10.10 is this well-known verse about abundant life, abundant living. I want us to, just for a moment, think briefly about what what uh, what would it contextually mean to have abundant life for a sheep owned by a caring Jewish shepherd in the year 8030. Just think about this for a moment. What does this mean? Well, what does the good shepherd provide? What what does the human good shepherd provide? Well, fresh water, right? In a parched desert, abundant life would certainly include an abundant supply of life-giving water. Sheep need roughly a couple gallons of fresh water every day. So this is fresh water, no algae, no bacteria. Okay, so they got their fresh water. They need plentiful food. In a desert wasteland where little grows, abundant life would surely include sufficient produce for the day's needs, right? Several pounds, most likely, depending on the size of each individual sheep. So they'd need a large pasture, sufficient for a number of sheep to eat their fill as they'd graze for about seven to eight hours each day. They need a secure sheepfold, ensuring safety, from wild animals, security from robbers. They'd need hay bedding so the sheep can be comfortable, clean, and warm while sleeping. They need a gentle breeze to keep the sheep nice and cool with all of their warm wool, especially during the hot summer months in the desert wilderness. They need properly clipped hooves to prevent foot rot, especially while the soil 
is moist, they'd also need frequent shearing. At least once a year, they need to be sheared so that their wool would grow properly and they could get around well. Now let me ask you, could the sheep survive on less? Absolutely they could survive on less. And I am certain that many have. But let me tell you, any less does not lead to abundant living. Any less does not lead to sheep flourishing. So I want to ask you, what is, what is abundant living? What is human flourishing? look like. We talked a little bit about this in NT1 the other day uh, with the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. I would argue right here that this is one aspect that makes our faith truly unique and distinct from all others. This potential for true, abundant living, true human flourishing that can only be found through the Good Shepherd, through Jesus Christ. Not to say that the desire for human flourishing at all is unique to Christians. It's not. On the contrary, I believe that this desire for abundant life, for abundant living, is found in the soul of every living human. We all want it. We crave it. Let me read you a couple lines from what one commentator states that I think he articulates it very well. The desire for human flourishing motivates everything humans do, both belief in religion and the rejection of it, monogamous marriage and a promiscuous lifestyle, Waging war and making peace, studying history and creating art, planting fields and building skyscrapers. All human behavior, when analyzed deeply enough, will be found to be motivated by the desire for life and flourishing, individually and corporately. Well, what is this author's point? Well, his point is that all humans, us, we, all seek satisfaction and fulfillment all the time in whatever we do. We can't help ourselves. This is naturally how we are wired. We intrinsically crave abundant life, even if we don't know what it fully looks like, even if we don't know where to get it. We might not know where to find it, but we know that we want it. What I believe this passage is teaching is that true abundant life, true human flourishing, can only come by means of Jesus, our good shepherd. And here really is part of the sad irony with it. When the world looks at Christians, when it thinks of the reputation of a lot of Christians, what does it see? Does the world profess to see, does secular Vermont profess to see evangelical believers as people experiencing true human flourishing? Does it profess to see Christians as people living truly abundant lives? Does it profess to see Christians as people deeply satisfied with the life that we've been dealt well, I believe that's who we are, but I think the world looks at Christians and all too often claims that we live empty, unsatisfied, boring, unfulfilled lives. I think it often views Christians as miserable, argumentative, preoccupied, and hostile people. Not that that's true, but I think that the world views that as true. It views us as people who don't know how to have a good time. And you know the ironic part of that is I actually think in many cases they're not that far off. What I find so life-giving about this passage, about John 10, but 10.10 in particular, about our faith, is that nothing should be further from the truth. Are there miserable Christians? Yes, there are. Are there Christians who live boring and empty lives? Yeah, undoubtedly. Are there Christians who don't take advantage of living an abundant life? Yes. My hope, NEBC, NEBC students, is that this may never be us that may never be characteristic of us. Christians, I believe, from this passage should be known as the ones who live, who really, truly live 
who don't merely just survive, but even in painful circumstances, when everything seems to be going wrong, know still how to thrive. We should be, of all people, known and characterized as those who live life to the fullest, as those who embrace what a true life committed to Christ can offer. I believe we do this in part by embracing the reality that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every good and perfect gift comes from our good shepherd. So, let's think about this for a moment. This reality of abundant life, if it, if it means that all Christians are to be the ones who enjoy all things far more than unbelievers, what would that what would that practically look like? Well, I think that in one sense, this abundant living is eschatological, yes. It's our hope in heaven, right? This is where our reward comes in. Christ talks about that frequently. But in another case, it's also very much here and now, embracing and enjoying the gifts of God today. Christians ought to be the ones who enjoy athletic and physical labor the most, who use the muscles and the strength that God has given. Christians ought to be the ones who enjoy formal academic study and rigorous scholarship the most. The ones who truly use the the mind and the intellect that the Lord God has provided. Christians ought to be the ones who enjoy family and close-knit friendships the most. Christians ought to be the ones who enjoy artistic and musical beauty, like, like the songs we heard. Very well done this morning. We ought to be characteristic as the ones who love that the most. We ought to be the ones who enjoy spending time in nature, who enjoy uh, the, the creation that God has made. We ought to be doing that more than anyone else. That's what I believe this passage even provides us the ability to do. This past summer, Allie and I traveled quite a bit. Uh, I'm sure second only to President Ballard and Matt Cooksey. I know Matt's always on the road as well. Um, But between seven weeks of travel, we were in 13 states, significant time in each of them, about 16,000 miles. Uh, We went to a lot of different places. Let me tell you, I believe that we live here in Vermont in one of the most beautiful parts of this entire country. Think about how the Lord has blessed us. We have four beautiful seasons. We just finished perhaps the nicest fall that I know I've seen in years here. Uh, we have our fifth mud season too, but we maybe won't count that one. Uh, we have hiking and skiing and kayaking and boating and swimming and fishing and farming and apple picking all right out our back doors. As Christians, we embrace the reality that this is God's good gift for us. Could we survive on less? Undoubtedly. Yet God has given so much more. He hasn't just given the minimal required for survival. He has given us so much. And yet even if that's all stripped away, he is still good. He is still our Savior, our spiritual Savior, which is the far greatest gift of, of anything that we can think of. Let me just encourage you, NEBC students, on a practical note, take advantage of this. You live in Vermont, really, and you've got some of the nicest Mountains to hike, mountains to ski and snowboard. When everybody is going to be miserable in two months from now and say, it's just too cold out, we can't even go outside, let me encourage you to to enjoy the freedom and the beauty of this world that God has given. When you go back on Thanksgiving break, savor every minute with your friends and your family. Enjoy every bite of turkey and pumpkin pie and savor it, giving glory to God for it. When unbelievers look at the holistic and abundant lives of Christians, quite frankly, they should be jealous. They they should be jealous of what we have, even when they look at believers struggling with chronic illness 
and they see the believer going through even a, a terminal illness with a strength and, the, and a dignity that comes from the Spirit of God, they should be perplexed. How do you do that? Not that our lives are perfect. I'm sure there's not a single one of us in this room who would say that they have a perfect family, a perfect life, perfect health, perfect finances, or perfect anything. We all come to Christ as broken individuals who need the healing hand of the Good Shepherd. Yet when we do, we find real and lasting healing. See, abundant life, I don't believe it's just any sort of a call to health and wealth. Far from it. Yet we should be characterized by a fervor and a zest for living. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Friends, abundant life is a call to grab a hold and embrace the good gifts of our Savior the good gifts of our good shepherd, to rejoice that, he, uh, that we are his and he is ours. Those who follow the good shepherd, they enjoy abundant life. A couple more points, and we're going to walk through these fairly briefly. Uh, we also see in this passage, those who follow the good shepherd are intimately known by him. Intimately known by him. We see this in verses 11 through 15. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Notice the contrast here now between this hired hand and the good shepherd. Unlike the thief or the robber, the hired hand is not necessarily malicious. He's probably not seeking to kill and steal and destroy like the thief does. But he does flee at the first sign of danger, and he leaves the sheep helpless. Why? Verse 12, he does not own the sheep. Verse 13, he cares nothing for the sheep. You'd say it's a job. It's not a calling. He doesn't really care. Not so the good shepherd, though. 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 11, or again, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. I just want us to pause and think on that just for a moment. When when, When Jesus is our good shepherd, he knows us. He knows you, even as you know him. We saw this idea earlier in 10 verse Three, building the same concept here, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them. I find the idea of God knowing our name just, just rather intriguing, rather fascinating. Isn't it interesting how if you are in the middle of a restaurant or in the middle of shopping at a busy grocery store, you don't know someone, you don't know anyone around, you're in the middle of doing a specific task, if, if you hear your name, even from a voice that you don't know, you instinctively turn around and you look. Well, why? Because there's, there's power in a name. It's, it's your identity in one very real sense. Have you ever responded when someone says your name? You know, do, we, do we know each other? Only to find out they're talking to somebody else completely different. There, there's power in a name. And Friends, how good is it that our shepherd knows our names? The creator of all things. The one who speaks worlds into existence knows your name. 
What an amazing and humbling thought that is. We are intimately known by our good shepherd. My name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Those who follow the good shepherd are known by him. The last point I want us to see, and again, we'll walk through this one fairly briefly. Those who follow the good shepherd rest securely in his care. Verse 16 through 21. And I have many other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. We'll pause there just for a moment. I want us to consider this. Who are the other sheep mentioned in verse 16? Well, in the context, probably because Jesus' ministry was originally primarily to the Jewish people. These other sheep are probably non-Jewish believers. We see this a bit in Jesus' ministry with the Samaritan woman, uh, the centurion, among others. It's really not, though, until after Jesus' death and resurrection, obviously, that the gospel spreads extensively to these other nations. Nonetheless, notice how Jesus still considers these unexpected sheep just as cherished as his first flock. This point's made very clear in verse 16. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. See, Jesus cares for the Gentiles just as he cares for the Jews. I believe a point of application from this passage for us is that our good shepherd is very much at work in gathering unexpected sheep into his flock. And that's an encouraging thing. We hear this all the time at NEBC of of people coming to Christ, uh, of lives being changed. The reality is that not a single one of us in this room were born Christians. We're born into Christ's flock. There are no natural born or biological Christians. One becomes a child of God. One, one enters into the flock of God only through adoption. What I find so encouraging um, is that just as these unexpected sheep would first hear the shepherd's voice and only later listen and know his voice, so it is with us. I am sure that every one of us in this room who counts themselves a believer in Christ could recount in great detail how they first heard, just like these sheep, you first hear the call. Only later do you know Jesus. That's how our salvation works. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. I would venture to say that there have been very few, if any, shepherds to ever intentionally give their life for their sheep. Accidentally, I am sure many. Uh, uh, There's a bear or some other wild animal that attacks and you're not prepared. Perhaps a a thief coming in. You try your best, but you, you don't make it. It may result in your accidental death. But an intentional death... You wouldn't intentionally die for your sheep. And this is really what distinguishes our good shepherd from all human shepherds. Notice again, 10 verse 18, I lay it down of my own accord. At the end of the day, Jesus' death is not credited to Pilate's foolish decision or the Sanhedrin's rigged trial, not to Caiaphas's wicked plot or Judas's heart-breaking betrayal, not to the soldiers mocking or their act of pounding the nails into Jesus' hands. 
No, his death is credited to his own willingness to lay down his life in the place of the sins of his sheep. He died not as an accidental martyr, but as an intentional savior. I want us to conclude by looking at 19 to 20, and this kind of wraps this whole passage together. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words, just like we saw earlier. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? 10 verse 20, he has a demon and is insane. 10 21, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? For, for the Greek students in this class, or in, in the Greek class, uh, this is, you, everybody could go and ask one of the Greek students why this uh, verse here demands a certain answer. And they'd all be able to tell you. This verse demands the answer, surely no. Surely no. He must be who he claims he is. These are the only two choices that this passage really leaves us with. 10 verse 20, we won't follow Jesus, or 10 verse 21, we will follow Jesus. What I want you to notice about the connection between 10, 21, and even, even earlier in chapter 9, 9 verse 32, 33, for instance, after the man born blind is healed, he proclaims, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Again, verse 21 of chapter 10, can, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The expected answer, surely not. It's as if both the blind man and those who believed in 10 verse 21 did not originally set out to believe, to claim that Jesus was their good shepherd. But after they witnessed these miraculous, this miraculous sign, saw the man born blind, healed, after they heard their good shepherd's voice, they couldn't help but believe. I would venture to say that's the case with many of us in this room. It's not that we originally set out on the path of life to be Christians, but it's that after we heard the Good Shepherd's voice in a unique variety of ways for every one of us, we couldn't help but follow after him. What are the characteristics of those who follow the Good Shepherd? Well, those who follow him know his voice, they're familiar with him, they enjoy abundant life, they embrace true human flourishing and savor the giver of all good gifts. They're intimately known by him. He knows their name. And they rest securely in his care, for he laid down his life for them. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we are grateful uh, for, for the gift of knowing you, uh, for the gift of uh, being sheep in the good shepherd's flock, Lord. Uh, even as we step into this Thanksgiving season, may we... Evermore reflect on the reality of your goodness toward us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.